Hello everyone and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is the 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. P.D. Pob, and before we announce our guests, I'd like to say a couple things. Um, first off, right off the bat, last week we didn't have an episode of Chapter Tactics. I'm really sorry about that. I was unfortunately driving through San Diego to Las Vegas, which is about a five-hour drive normally. However, it turns into a seven-hour drive with a little four-year-old who actually was an angelic being throughout the entire trip, considering most children that age are usually pretty awful, at least from my experience, maybe not in every parent's experience, but usually driving around with a toddler um, long distances isn't the most fun experience. But that's why, that's why, unfortunately, it was a, I missed out on the time we recorded, and then uh, one thing led to another, and we just didn't record that week. So, that's that. Also, just a special kind of announcement to everyone listening and to the general 40k community. You know, try to try to take care of yourself health-wise. You know, uh, we, we occasionally talk about mental health on this podcast and health, you know, health benefits and being healthy while playing and stuff. But, you know, just try to take care of yourself. Brush those teeth. You know, try not to eat. 20 mcdonald's burgers in a night um and uh you know just just try to take care of yourself you don't have to change your healthy lifestyle or adopt a healthy lifestyle to to take care of yourself but that's all i don't want anything bad happening to anyone who listens or anyone so just you know be safe stay healthy all that stuff all right back onto the main topic you've already read it we're talking about the dreaded first turn boogeyman ninth edition we've heard all about it it's too OP. It's not OP enough. We've I've been hearing it since 6th edition. We're going to talk about that this episode. But with me, I brought on some uh, a guest who hasn't been on in a very long time. Several years. A couple years. Uh, Mr. James Carmona from Boston. Boston. Now, at least. Right on. And then, of course, we have, as always, the android, Brandon Grant. It's good to be back. All right. So... Before before we even begin, uh, why don't we just kind of put this out of the way now? Uh, first thoughts, first turn. Brandon and James, how important is it to you going into a game? Well, right now, uh, worst case scenario is pretty bad in ninth um, due to the changes with terrain, which I think TOs are still adjusting to, players are still adjusting to. If you're using those old ruins with windows on the bottom and you're not placing enough terrain on the board. Uh, going second can be really scary in some of these modern armies that hit really hard. Um, and especially now with scoring objectives at the start of your turn instead of the end, you can make it almost impossible to score objectives if you're going second and lose that much initiative. So the worst case in going second, I think, in ninth is a lot worse than it used to be in eighth. But that's the worst case. We're here to discuss all cases. So there's a good reason we're discussing this, but it's not all doom. Yeah, the only thing I really have to add to that is is actually that Brandon is correct in saying that it's not just the Alpha Strikes that we need to be worried about in the first turn. It's actually a combination of the Alpha Strike and then the board control. Because in ninth edition, we know that going forward, we need to have uh, armies uh, that, are, that are getting up scoring as quickly as they can. And so when you have fast armies that can jump on objectives in the first turn, and if they're durable, that's when the game can kind of get away from you. It's not just that alpha strike. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. 
Right on. Now, one thing I've heard constantly is that uh, certain armies excel at going first. Think like Space Marine Salamanders who want to go first turn so they can get that second turn reserves beta strike, which certainly is very powerful. Uh, and also uh, Blood Angels and White Scars, the ability to move up, force your opponent into their deployment zone and keep them there, do a ton of damage. Um, Eldar have always been known as kind of an alpha strikey type army, etc., etc. Uh, James, you mentioned before the podcast... Uh, an RTT uh, where a list did really well was kind of a list that cut against the green of what we've kind of tended to see at the top tables. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about that list? And then do you think that list needed to go first every single time it played? Or do you think that like maybe, uh, maybe it was just designed to beat the meta? Well, um, the tournament you're talking about was actually a GT um, and no, that's okay. And it was a custodies list. The it was actually a, a really shooty custodies list. It was three Caladius tanks, an Ares, and some Aqualon Terminators. So the list by itself is is very durable. It's relatively fast. Um, and I think if it does go first and you're exposed and your your terrain is not up to snuff, yeah, it'll it'll definitely strike hard enough to kind of put you on the back foot. Um, but also, as we know, custodies are just really good in ninth now. They've got a lot more CP to work with. And it keeps them on the table for much longer so that they can actually stay and score. Uh, everything um, has an invul save and, you know, the whole nine. But if I were to say that it needed to go first, I, I think I think I'd be lying. I think that army can actually stay on the board all by itself um, pretty well and, and stick around for most of the game. Uh yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it has some reserve manipulation, obviously, in the Terminators. Um, and the thing about the the Ares specifically and the the tanks is that if you look at the top meta armies now, they're not designed to kill tanks turn one, right? Like think like Salamanders Eradicators, like really really good at killing tanks. I'm sure three units of Eradicators Vulcan will absolutely destroy an Ares tank um, or any Forge World tank for that matter. Um, <clears throat> but they can't do a turn one. That's it's just almost it's almost impossible for them. So if you're running like a really heavy shooting, think like a Bane Blade or Shadow Blade or like a Taunar or some sort of really heavy hitting durable vehicle, turn one, you're probably gonna be okay. Um unless of course you're facing up against one of those. But even then, like with the exception of I think the Shadow Sword and maybe a Castellan, which people still aren't running Castellans, um, you're mostly not gonna lose uh like one big vehicle turn one. Right, and then on top of that, he's got the Caladiuses too. So it, it's kind of a off meta, at least from my first kind of glance at that list. It's kind of an off meta in that regards, and it has long range, powerful shooting backed on these big, you know, high toughness vehicle bodies. Brandon, what do you think? I like the sound of the list. Um, I think it has a lot of options for preventing your opponent from holding objectives while maintaining your high model count, and um, especially with the CP shenanigans that. Um, custodies can bring to the table consistently now that uh, Carmona was referencing. My favorite is the Tanglefoot Grenade. Like, you cannot reliably charge custodies from reserve. If you're trying to get in there, they're going to save the 1 CP, and their infantry model is going to throw a grenade, and you're just not going to make the charge, because now you have essentially a D6 inch charge for 9 inches. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and on top of that, the uh, Caladiuses have that rule that subtracts uh, inches off your charge anyways. Yeah, so... The vehicles are hard to charge. The infantry are hard to charge. It's hard to get close and get to grips with them, number one. Number two, they don't have to get close to you to do a lot of damage. So I really like the durability that that list brings. And I think that especially with the the new terrain rules, 
having long range shooting is actually really good when it can hide out of line of sight behind obscuring terrain that's really big and then just peek out and shoot around it for most of the game because uh, you have to be pretty far behind the terrain now to be obscured by it. You can't be inside of the L-shaped ruin. You have to be behind it. So 48-inch range guns are actually really good. Right, and couple that with the fact that the Ares gunship can just pretty much fly across the table and shoot you in the ass in the first turn. That's actually something people aren't ready for, I think. Um, if you played enough games of Ninth, um, you, you realize that that's a, uh, a thing that doesn't happen too often. So you start to maybe not plan for that, and then you realize how much damage that thing can do, and you're by that point, it's already too late. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, character sniping is a lot easier in this edition than it was in last edition. Uh, so having a mobile you know gunboat like an Ares, i imagine would be super useful as well as the caladius tanks too like if you need to clear intercessors off a chaplain to shoot the chaplain and kill him caladius tanks are really good at that makes sense to me and the weapons are all optimized for removing space marines yep (laughs) wouldn't you know uh so let's i want to talk about uh terrain we alluded to that a little bit uh and we, you know, Gunhammer article came out talking about the importance of the turn one, uh, how even though with incomplete data, we did have a rough idea of uh, turn one being a 60% win percentage or a 60% chance to win your game if you do go first uh, right off the bat immediately. Um, and then the Gunhammer article talked about uh, terrain. And that's something that in general, a lot of people have been kind of talking about is there aren't there haven't been enough terrain on the tables in the tournaments that we have seen being streamed um and we need a lot of terrain on the you know on the tables to prevent first turn alpha strikes but that's also something i've been hearing about for multiple editions i feel like that the from my very first tournament at the las vegas open i've always heard gamers complain about not having enough terrain that's always been the thing however throughout three editions now people have been consistently doing well across multiple editions think like nick nanavati right they, they've been doing well uh the, terrain hasn't really increased that much like i feel like terrain is is other than i guess maybe the very first lvo i played in basically since the itc adopted the or made the itc terrain line we've consistently seen the same kind of amount of terrain um adepticon has to their credit put more terrain on the board and upgraded their terrain but in general, I haven't seen a lot of terrain increase, and I don't know, does it... So I guess the question I'm asking both of you is, do we need? Do we really need more terrain on the boards, or is it just kind of the same old, you know, uh, thing that people have been asking about since the beginning of 6th edition, right? We just need more terrain. So do we actually need more terrain, or... or it's not just quantity of terrain, it's the where the terrain is located and the shape of the terrain. So again... With the new obscuring terrain rules, you can hide your entire unit behind obscuring terrain. No problem. It's really great. It removes rules arguments. There's no molecule. Oh, I can see your foot through this door if I'm squinting at the right angle. No, the terrain just blocks line of sight, which is great. Except that most of the obscuring terrain that we've been using since at least 8th edition and beyond is pretty thick. So at least in my local area, a lot of these pieces are about 6 by 6 or larger. Some that are as large as 12 by 12 and have four walls. But those walls all have windows in them. So if you have that piece of terrain in your deployment zone and you want to be out of line of sight, you have to be at least 12 inches from the front of that piece of terrain because it's taking up such a huge area. Which means if you actually want to start moving forward, 
most of the time you're guaranteed that you're going to have to expose that unit on the other side of the terrain because you can't move both all the way forward through that terrain 12 inches and hide behind the next piece of terrain, which is probably another 12 inches away. So when it comes to thinking about how we as tournament organizers should be putting terrain on the table, I think we need to realize that a full 12 by 12 piece of obscuring terrain is not something you can launch an attack from. It's something that you can use defensively. So for example, for those Caladius tanks, and stay really far away from your opponent. But it's not a way to get a melee unit into combat. I don't know, have you noticed anything, Carmona? Everything I've seen so far, uh, admittedly, is through TTS. So, that being said, um, it, it seems like a lot of the terrain they've been using, at least on on that, has been um, geared lately towards ninth in mind. And so, what I've seen is, whenever you have like these larger ruins pieces... They tend actually to get more in the way, like you're saying, Brandon, um, than than actually helping for for assaults because it's just it's too difficult to to navigate them without exposing yourself. Um, I would say going forward, I'd like to see. Um, well, I hate to say it, but more more GW style terrain because it seems like that's the most usable, and it's just so odd to say that because in the past it really hasn't been um, the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think I, I went on record a couple episodes ago earlier talking about what I think the best terrain for ninth was, and I think the the GW style terrain and also the like the Nova walls, where it's just a flat line of sight blocking no base, right? I feel like those are a lot better than than kind of what we have now, which is kind of the consensus what we you know what we've seen on tables all over the world. Uh, so. I want to go back to the point that we made where we talked about the um, the terrain um, being too dense, or, or I guess basically we don't have um, terrain that is designed for the new edition. Um, you mentioned specifically, James, that uh, you've been playing on Tabletop Simulator and the terrain has been kind of geared towards 9th edition on Tabletop Simulator. And so my question is to both of you, is do we need more terrain? Is it like a terrain density issue or is it just a terrain format issue? Do we just, have we just not found the secret sauce formula that just fits the best terrain? Like, is it really just eight pieces of terrain all but in a very specific way that catered every GW mission or is it just, we just need more terrain. So here's what the terrain is doing now, as far as I've seen. So what happens is, um, the terrain is very nice if you're a firebase army with 36 to 48 inch range weapons that doesn't leave its deployment zone, combined with extremely resilient units that can go forward and hold objectives and put pressure on your opponent and or screen them out. Um, but the stuff that's going forward really isn't there to do damage most of the time. It's there to protect the stuff that's in or near your home deployment zone that does all the damage. And in return... If your opponent wants to launch an assault on you, it's incredibly difficult to get through that front line. So they end up launching an assault, but then the defending player, their assault units didn't have to get shot up as they crossed the board. They come out, they delete the unit that just came in. So it ends up in this sort of arena slash back and forth style game very quickly. But it doesn't reward, in my opinion, melee units trying to cross the board. It rewards melee units coming in from reserves with charges that are statistically very probable. So the example before we launched into the podcast was the um, chaos ability for Slanesh 
where if they fail their charge, they can spend a CP and one of the dice on the charge roll becomes a six. That makes that unit extremely attractive in this new edition where you can't get melee units to cross the board reliably. But counter to that, it makes that custodies list where those vehicles are all minus two to be charged and or infantry with tanglefoot grenades very attractive as it counters the primary delivery system for melee units in the new edition. Um, otherwise, shooting is just fine with the new terrain rules. Shooting doesn't really care much, but it, the way I'm seeing it is um, aggressive melee units have to be reasonably durable because in 8th edition, it was a big play to go into an L-shaped ruin with your melee unit where all the wi uh, windows are blocked out and control a big piece of the board with that melee unit and their threat range. So, for example, we saw the Possessed Star at LVO. That unit just goes into the most centrally located line-of-sight blocking piece of terrain and with warp time says, you cannot come to the center of the board or I will kill you. I don't think that style of melee is going to be as good. Melee is either going to be, I come in from reserve and auto-make charges, or I hold back in my own deployment zone, and if you ever charge my front line, my melee unit responds and deletes you. Yeah, that's what I've seen the most. I, I think that a lot of these really tough gun lines usually have something sitting there. I mean, like Sisters of Battle do it with um, Repentia. They just chill in their rhinos. They can be aggressive if they want to, but really what it comes down to is you get a really cheap unit that's going to die anyways, and it can wreck house. So if somebody gets too aggressive, you punish them immediately and then continue your, you know, sitting or jumping on objectives, whatever it is that you were trying to do. Um, and that that's actually funny that we're talking about first turn, because I think a lot of the strategies that you've been talking about, Brandon, actually work better, uh, not in pole position, but rather going second. And it, it's it's interesting, right? Because I, I think that even though that that is um, an extremely viable uh strategy going first still has the added effect of, of removing units before they get to actually start making themselves valuable. Um, sticking with the Sisters of Battle example, they have exorcists, they've got um, things that can come from reserve to actually harm the opponent, and it's it's better if you're going first to get that, that beta strike off in the second turn. Um, I, I don't know, I, I'm just, I'm trying to, to make sense of this whole thing still, and I'm still at ends. I, I don't really know which is better, first or second? Do, okay. Now, do, uh, Why don't ahead, we go on some of the pluses and minuses of going first or second? So I already mentioned that if you go second and your opponent has scout moves or fast-moving units and they hold all the objectives and push you back into your deployment zone very aggressively early, that it's difficult for you to leave your deployment zone. It's difficult for you to shoot your opponent off of their objectives. So that can be a huge advantage for the player who goes first, even if they don't actually do that much damage to you, as long as you struggle to push them back most of the game. Because let's say you start tabling them at the bottom of three. They had three turns where they scored max points on the primary. You have two turns to make that up. Um, you could very well lose the game if your opponent in three turns scored enough points on the secondary and had enough lead on the primary you can't catch up. So that's one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that one of the ways to do that really well, just just uh, to, to say, is those Sulphur Hounds from um, Admech. They're really good at getting up in your face and uh, making you play on your back foot. Oh, they're right? super they're, frustrating to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. They're very hard to deal with. And, I mean, 
how do you counter that, right? I mean, again, you can try and use really cheap units that are that are decent in combat that you don't really worry about either dying or that you don't care that they die because of you know because of points because they're cheap. Um, that's one way to try and counter that and and still be okay. But it, as we know, it's very hard to charge them. <laughs> um, I don't really have a counterpoint to that. I think in that particular case, going first is is more important. Okay. Well, what's a case where going second is more important other than I want my reserves and or beta strike to come in after yours so I get the last laugh? Well, that was going to be my answer. Because <laughs> we already well, discussed I, that. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you have something like with a lot of um, like really powerful indirect fire, going second is actually better because then you let your opponent kind of like show you what he's going to do and you can... You can um, you know, jump on whichever objective after you destroy something on it. You just, you immediately um, kind of counterpunch him. That's that's a, a way to do that. But I mean, you would need a lot of indirect fire to keep yourself safe. You need a screening, um, set of screening units to also keep yourself safe from deep strikes and whatever. Um, and then you can just try and play that game where every time he jumps on an objective, you just remove him from it. That can be really frustrating. I also feel like if you have fast melee units, uh, think like Outrider Bikes, Blood Angels, uh, Raven Guard, even though they're not so much meta anymore. Uh, I think having fast melee units um, going up the board and helps if you go second. Because you a lot of times when it comes to those melee units specifically, like um, Repentia and stuff, they usually have like a threat range of like 30, like a charge range of like 24 to 30 inches. Like something ridiculous, right? But... They usually can't get their turn one unless your opponent's just an like absolute awful player and they line up on the line and then you line up on the line and you go first. That usually doesn't happen. Usually what ends up happening is you you line up on the line, your opponent plays KG, uh, they give you first turn, which I've seen really good players do this to these style of armies. They give you first turn, you have two options, you either go first... Uh, you either move up and you die, or you don't move up and your opponent still plays KG, and then you're playing this weird game that doesn't really suit your style of army. Oh, but if you go second, uh, you're forcing your opponent to, you're giving your opponent the initiative. Do they move up, risk the combat, or do they give you the ability to basically go second and score a bunch of primary points uh, and move up as well? Right, so I feel like going second would benefit an army like that. Those armies aren't very meta, and they do lose, they like auto-lose to very specific terrain layouts. Like, if there's a lot of terrain that has a lot of holes in it, um, there's no solid walls for them to hide behind, um, there's nothing really in the center of the board for them to kind of park into and charge out of, uh, then those kind of armies will absolutely just shit the bed. They're not going to do well. Now, do you guys think that are having those kind of armies in the game is that healthy for the game and do we think that's something that tos should cater to by adding things like solid line of sight blocking ruin walls yes. um do you think that that's something that's that's healthy for the game that would also make going second a viable strategy for certain armies i think like, that if i were designing a ninth edition terrain table i would focus on um obscuring terrain that's only a few inches thick and has a L shape or a long length to it. Um, that way you can not touch it, but be just outside of it uh, where the line of sight begins, and then move through it if you're infantry or fly, um, and charge something that's reasonably close to the other side. But if it's 12 inches thick, um, your opponent can be really far away on an objective somewhere, and your threat range is just not there, because most of the time those terrain pieces aren't close to the center of the board. 
So I don't know. I would redesign the terrain pieces being used, or I would change their placement so that they're closer to the center of the board. Um, because, yeah, having those armies in the game is actually extremely good because they don't rely necessarily on killing you, and it's less about raw power, and it's more about positioning. And I think anytime an army forces you to play a positioning game, it's healthy for the state of 40k. Also, I'll... Go ahead, James. Well, I was going to say that there's actually a couple armies that do take advantage of the way that the, that it is set up now. Um, of all things, orcs actually do pretty well with it when they start playing horde style. Um, Brandon, you saw Jeff's list at that tournament you went to. Um, it's it's largely about trying to catch somebody um, overextending onto objectives. If if it runs, if somebody runs too far forward, he starts to swarm you, and that's actually one way that that kind of terrain does in fact help um, because they don't care. <laughs> They don't care about what terrain is anywhere. Um, when you're running 120 orc boys, you're going to get shot anyways. And it, as as weird as it seems, um, no one's taking those dreaded blast weapons that everybody was afraid of at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's just they, they just don't seem to show up. So th- they're largely unaffected by that. And you still have everybody taking you know weapons that are they're more geared for for like you know heavy infantry and things like that. So orcs are actually in a really good spot because they don't care about the terrain. They never have. And they can just kind of go forward and still do the same thing they've always done. Yeah, I, I agree, James, 100%. Um, I also like the the idea of the position game that Brandon was talking about because more armies can play to that style of, of gameplay, right? Like a, a Tyranid list isn't going to outshoot a Space Marine list or outcharge a White Scars list, right? That's just not going to happen. Tyranids are, they're not a super high top tier faction. I think they're a lot better than people give them credit for, but... The point is is that Tyranids can play a position game. They can move up the board. They can take the moral of the board. They can take advantage of charging out of line of sight blocking L ruins um, with things like warriors and chain stealers. Um, they could do that well. And and a lot of armies can play to, to a position style game. Um, as long as I think you're okay as a TO, as long as you make sure that terrain isn't completely covering an objective, you, there's a balance between... Uh, the where the place terrain basically you don't want a unit to sit in a piece of terrain and not have an ability to interact with it unless you charge it so like you don't want like a unit like bulgrin or something sitting in a piece of terrain holding an objective that's non-interaction exactly what you want to prevent so if you can set set up terrain so that you'll always have those kind of like ever-present hiding holes that can threaten the center of the board but you can't actually win the game just by hiding in them. I think what it'll create is kind of like a, like a, a really like mobile kind of like clockwise motion game where you, you circle around the objectives and kind of either chase each other or you either run at each other or anyway. I think I think that leads to more dynamic play. It's basically what I'm trying to say. But also, I I want to hear more about these horde style lists because what it sounds like is if we have horde style lists like Jeff's orc list. Um, we have kind of like a rock, paper, scissors type deal where a horde lists be vehicle lists or vehicle lists, um, lists that are designed to kill vehicles. And then those kind of lists beat the actual vehicle lists. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? The vehicle yeah, lists can't be Yeah, you're trying to do like a rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, right? yeah. I think that's, I think that's actually pretty healthy. Um, cause in that case, every army can kind of compete, right? You just pick one of, you pick rock, paper, scissors, and then your army does that really well. And then you just, Tune your well, list to the uh, to the to Pablo, rock. I think you run into with this in like paper. Magic the Gathering. What's up? You've run into this in Magic the Gathering metas. 
where you mm-hmm. have, yes. and this is kind of what I wanted to allude to with the first and second turn thing. Let's say it really is 60% win rate for first turn for Sean Maiden versus anyone else competitive. If that's true, um, even if that assumption's true, it doesn't necessarily mean you should just take all your dice and models and go home. It just means that, okay, what should I do to plan for going second so that I don't have a 40% chance of winning the game? I have a 50% chance of winning a game, and it's player skill. Yeah, that's that's 100% true, Brandon. I actually, really, I'm really glad you brought that up because it brings up the concept of uh, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, you don't, in Magic, for instance, uh, if there's a deck that's got a 70% win rate across the board against all other decks, Magic players just flock to it, right? Because, because of course, it, it gives you such a high chance to win, and then you play towards the mirror match. However, if a deck has like a 60% win rate, it's considered a powerful deck. It's considered meta, and you gear your list towards it, but you can still run with jank. You can still win with jank. That's uh, right. Meaning that... Your jank can be that tailored in such a way that it has a 60% win rate versus the deck that has a 70% win rate versus the field, but a 40% win rate against the rest of the field. Exactly. And it all comes down to perception too, right? If the community perceives that going first, even if even if going first statistically only gave you like a 55% chance of winning, so not that high of an advantage, but like a chess advantage where, where it really doesn't, player skill actually matters more than going first. If the community perceives that that 55% is more like 70% and starts bringing lists that want to wholesale just go first turn, that also leads to a negative play experience and a toxic meta, right? Because even though even though going first doesn't actually give you that much of an advantage, because the community perceives going first gives you that much of an advantage, um, everyone is going to start playing the same style of lists, it's going to stagnate the meta, and then maybe someone who... Go is new to 40k is going to go to a tournament and be put off because that's what tournament 40k looks like, right? So that's also what I'm concerned with too. Um, uh, this is actually a really good discussion. Uh, uh, before we move on to commercial break, is there anything either of you want to add about uh, the idea of going first and kind of the factors involved in ninth edition and going first uh, before we move on to specifics on how to beat going first when you go second? Um, yeah, I mean... I just wanted to say that, again, it's really important to understand that those results are going to always seem skewed. Always. And the reason for that is is because there's always going to be a discrepancy in player skill. So if you have somebody that is, you guys always like to use the Sean Naden reference, so I guess I'll go ahead and follow suit. If Sean Naden is playing somebody who's at their first tournament and he goes first, right, he's likely going to cripple them and make it a huge blowout. If he plays, say, three players in preliminary rounds that are all new, that first turn for him is going to mean a lot more than it is for them. Mm-hmm. That means something. Um, and if you kind of look at the statistics as they as they start kind of going up in the tiers, as far as you know, like placings, I think that's where you're going to get your more you know the meat of the of the argument first versus second turn, and that's really where we should be looking. Um, but as far as just taking the numbers in raw, I, I I don't I don't think that's a really healthy way of looking at the um you know the the first turn second turn um advantage you're right and and a a newer player might not recognize that they lost because they went so they might recognize that they lost right but they might see it like oh my opponent went first that's why i lost instead of oh my opponent was Sean Naden and he capitalized on going first really hard that's actually why i lost 
right? Um, so that that's actually a really good point, James. Um, and that perception of that means everything too, right? People might not necessarily know who the best players are. And so when they auto lose to those best players or have like a 90% loss rate to those players because they go first, they'll start to take that back home and use those experience anecdotal events to prove that for going first is actually a, a detriment, you know, so, or going first as a, as a positive, going second is a detriment. Anyways, uh, Brandon, do you have anything else to add? Even if you as an individual lose 70% of the time when you go second, that isn't an incurable illness. There are things you can do to mitigate that personally with whatever army you have. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Commercial break now. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. Now, if you're listening on YouTube, we have an advertiser for you. Normally, we go to commercial break. Only the Megaphone and other podcast audio listeners hear a commercial. However, I've got a commercial to talk about, and we're going to talk about some sponsors of the podcast, and that is the patrons. That's right. The patrons sponsor this podcast, and for those of you who are listening on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you go, Chapter Tactics has a Patreon patreon.com slash chapter tactics so you can donate to the podcast help us keep the lights on and also win cool prizes speaking of we're giving away an indominus box for the month of august and james was actually the one who actually brandon was the one who picked the indominus box patron winner so brandon what was that number that you picked at the beginning before the episode started 34 34 okay let's go to number 34 and that's going to be Anthony Rice. Anthony Rice, congratulations. You've been a patron since December of last year, and it has finally paid off. I'm going to message you right now, buddy. Congratulations. Uh, You are now the proud owner of an Indominus box. Yes, they still have them. No, you don't have to wait till December. I saved one personally just for the patrons. And also, I gave away an Indominus box for anyone who commented on episode number 170 of Chapter Tactics. That one was a complete guide to competitive 40k content. I want to give that one a plug because it plugs all of the competitive 40k podcasts, channels, blogs, etc. Everything competitive 40k. If you have a hard on for consuming competitive 40k content, that is the episode for you. And James, you got to pick the lucky winner for that. What was the number you picked? Eight. Eight. Corn. <laughs> number eight. So not too far down. Thank you, sir. Uh, that was goes to Jamis Thane. Jamis Thane, who likes Auspex ta- tactics. Uh, even though uh, their content is, according to him, a little dry in delivery. That's okay. Auspex Tactics is absolutely an awesome YouTube channel. And Jamis, congratulations. You won an Indominus box. I'm going to put it in here in the comments below. And that's it. So congratulations to Jamis and uh, Anthony for winning the Indominus box. And remember, if you want to win more awesome prizes, sign up for patreon.com slash chapter tactics. And I know this has been a long commercial break, but normally this is at the beginning of the episode, so you're welcome. And we're back. All right, Brandon and James, let's talk about specifics now. So uh, win-loss ratio aside, percentages aside, 
you go first, you're probably a lot happier. Just because you're unable to enact your plan first, you, as Brandon might say, you would hand the initiative off to your opponent because you get to decide where the game's going to go. You get to determine the tempo. And um, if you're running the right army, you even get to decide what toys your opponent doesn't get to play with this game, or at least in the first turn. So uh, it is clear that going first is viewed as um, a positive. And so what are some things that you do automatically in the list building phase to tailor to uh, your army to going second? Um, Because we all know that we don't go first every single game. Um, And so is building a balanced list that likes to go first or second, is that the way to go? Or skewing so that you always win hard when you go first, is that better? Or is uh, building a list that you always go second, but uh, you can't really take advantage of going first when you do go first, is that better? Where's the secret sauce there when you're building your list? Ideally, you want to build a list that theoretically has at least a 50% chance of winning in both situations, so it comes down to player skill. And then you can rely on, I know my list really well, I know what your list does, and I'll win because I'm the better player. That's what we're both looking for. But um, that said, if you're trying to build a heavy skew list where it's like, if I go first, I win 90% of the time. Uh, we saw that almost with um, Raven Guard in the last edition, where if a Raven Guard player went first, they basically wouldn't lose. Um, that can work as long as you also have a plan where number one, if you go second, you don't automatically lose. And two, um, you can deploy so that you can go second safely and still have that really high win rate when going first, which Raven Guard did due to their deployment shenanigans. That's what I'll say about that. Yeah, luckily, that list kind of got, I'm not going to say neutered, but it definitely uh, isn't as easy to put your, your dick on the table like it did before because... Now you don't know if you're going first until after we deploy. So that's that's actually a good thing now. Uh, so what actually, real quick, James, um, people might might not be familiar with who you are. Um, what faction do you run? Are you running a ninth edition right now currently? I'm running pure CSM. I'm doing uh, two uh, two different legions, um, Alpha Legion and Emperor's Children. Okay. Uh, how important is going first for your, your list that you've been running currently? Um, it actually doesn't really matter to me. Um, I'm using an all Terminator list or at least most, mostly Terminators. And, um, I've got ways to, to get up the board before the game starts. Um, I've also come in from deep strikes. So there's lots and lots of shenanigans I can pull to, to make sure that the only stuff that's on the board is either hidden or very hard to kill. Yeah. What I'm hearing is the alpha legion Terminators can scout move and the Emperor's children Terminators can automatically make a nine inch charge from reserve. Uh, less than one and a half percent of the time they'll fail. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty nasty That's little combo. Pretty good. <laughs> right. I mean, the the way that I see it is, I'm I'm trying to bait a strike. That the 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 strength in my list is to kind of bait you out to the center of the table. I'm I'm gonna you know put some stuff out there in the middle to make you shift to to fire or whatever. And uh, when the Emperor's Children's Terminators come down, they can shoot twice, and then like Brandon said, ninety nine percent chance to make that charge. Now, how do you – so one other thing about going first that we talked about earlier that's so important is the ability to board control and zone your opponent off of um, 
key parts of the board. So how does your list counter that when your opponent does do that? Right? Let's say you're playing like an old school style gene circle list that absolutely just floods the board turn one and gives you almost no places to drop down. Uh, do you just start how how well does your um list start um when it starts on the board completely? Uh how do you deal with that personally um with your list specifically? So so the Alpha Legion units in my army um can start out a little little forward um board facing and the reason why is because when gene sealer cults or heavy reserve armies come on the table i can spend a cp to i'm sorry i think it's two cp to keep everybody um more than 12 inches away from me um so that's a big deal because making charges from there or trying to flood the table by chump charging is not going to happen um also i have a um a pseudo auspex scan i can use as well so getting close to those kinds of units, especially Terminators with that much firepower, isn't really a good idea. There, there's always something to do with the list. There's always some way to kind of like fight my way out of it. Okay, right on. Uh, Brandon, what about you? What have you been running in 9th edition? How do you deal with going first and going second? So assuming you don't have foul chaos sorcery to prevent your opponent from charging the turn one from reserve. The only other way to deal with that, in my opinion, is screening which is something I'm really familiar with from a background with Guard, where the front line of your army is expendable. Um, alternatively, uh, you keep your heavy-hitting units either out of line of sight in your second line or in reserve exclusively, so that if your opponent goes first, they won't be able to harm them. They're either off the table or safe behind screens and out of line of sight. And if you do that, even if your opponent tries to control the entire board, including charging your front line, your heavy hitting unit is safe and now can start counterattacking and moving up the board by simply blenderizing everything in the way. And Chaos Terminators are certainly good for that. For Guard or Sisters, it comes down to Bulgrins um, or Sisters Repentia. Both of those can push units away from you and out of your deployment zone rather effectively. Okay. So let, let's talk about some generalities now for people who are maybe aren't playing Chaos Space Marines and uh, Sisters and Guard. What are some general tips that you would give to people who are having a hard time going second and winning games? Um, well, where would you start? Okay, I can like start. With like a newer player, for instance. So um, preferably, there's going to be at least one line of sight blocking piece of terrain in every deployment zone. So you're always going to be able to hide some of your stuff out of line of sight. So you know that. Keep that in mind during list building. So assume you're on a table with light terrain going second, and there is only one hiding spot. Um, maybe on average, it's about the equivalent size of two rhinos. So what are models you can bring that are really heavy hitting and maybe not super durable that can hide in the space of two rhinos and start on the board every game? There you go. There's a good start. Um, on top of that, you're going to need to take objectives. And going second, it can be very hard to take objectives. So starting a melee unit or a really hard-hitting short-range shooting unit on the board that can leap out uh, in turn one and clear objectives for you is super good. So I know for Chaos, for example, um, if we're going to James Carmona's list, I'm surprised he didn't mention Noise Marines yet because they fit the bill perfectly. They fit in the area where two rhinos approximately take up. They can warp time up the board, so move about 12 inches or 12 plus 2d6 if they're advancing. And then they have 24-inch range guns that shoot really well. 
So that one unit performs that going second roll perfectly, where it can move out where it needs to go and delete enemy units off objectives turn one pretty reliably. So think of your unit to start on the board like that. Otherwise, having reserves that can show up and make a difference in any game really helps limit the effect of going second on light terrain, as long as the, whatever it is you're starting on the board can clear enough space for you to arrive. Yeah, that's all really good. Um, also, don't skimp on transports. I think that uh, as of right now, if you're looking at any way to like kind of stay on objectives and, and to make it annoying, I mean, stuff a squad into an old rhino or a chimera or whatever you have and maybe throw a character in there. And what you end up getting is a unit that splits into three or four and stays on an objective a lot longer than your opponent had expected. Um, also, to, to kind of piggyback what uh, Brandon was saying about noise marines, yeah, if you do that and you also combine it with rhinos or termites or what have you, it's an even better combo um, because you have to get through the, the actual transport, pop it, and then you get to start dealing with what's ever inside. Um, also, noise marines shoot you after they die, so that's another bit of annoyance as well. So, yeah, they are the perfect go-second kind of unit. Um, there's a lot of other ones in, in other armies that are, that are good in the same way. You can take that banner still, I think, where um, Space Marines can shoot after they die. That's another. The other advantage to transports is that you start di di diversifying your toughnesses. So um, if you put a squad of Rhino, like a Rhino with a squad of Repentia inside of it on an objective, your opponent needs to be able to cover that objective with shooting that can kill the Rhino and shooting that can kill the Repentia inside which isn't always necessarily easy to do, especially if you're fighting like for board position and denying your opponent's sections of the board. Um, so that, that's one thing that is also overlooked too, is um, the ability to di diversify your toughnesses also gives you an advantage when you're going second. Um, especially if you are, if one of those toughnesses, like your transports, are also really mobile. So like look at like Eldar Wave Servant Spam is a really, really good counter meta list to a lot of meta lists because it doesn't need to go first at all like going first for it is cool because it's mobile enough to reach out get board position and take out key parts of your opponent's army but it doesn't need to go first at all because killing nine or eight wave servants is really 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 hard and then you have to deal with the troops inside who, when their wave serpents break, they scatter like ants throughout the entire board, right? That was them scattering right now, if you, if you heard that knocking around. Um, so that, that's another great way to take advantage of your, of your ability to um, be defensive as an army. And with the exception of, like, Tyranids, which can't really do that too well, um, most armies can diversify their toughnesses or have options to it. They might not be able to do it as well, right? So, like, not everyone has access to wave serpents, but armies can do it. See, Pablo, I'd actually go the other way and say that when you were describing the orc list, for example, 120 orc boys can't hide, but there are 120 orc boys under a custom force field equivalent and with field no pain. So, you're unifying your toughnesses. Your opponent has no targets for their las cannons, their melta guns, their plasma cannons. None of that is really that effective, unless you're a plasma inceptor, of course, and you're shooting six times. But that's beside the point. The point is, make sure that if your opponent can see stuff, the only stuff they can see is the same. So it's 120 orc boys, or in the case of chaos, it's uh, 15 chaos spawn, or it's uniform wave serpent spam. Whatever it is, 
whatever you are exposing, make sure it's all the same. So when your opponent goes first, one class of weapons that they have is not really that useful. Like my 35 Terminator equivalents. Yeah, I mean, last guns don't do anything to that. Heavy bolters before the nerf really don't do anything to that, assuming they're in cover. So that's a great way to just say, yeah, okay, your plasma cannons are good. I'm just going to make your plasma cannons go away as fast as I possibly can and worry about the rest later. And going That's second, exactly right. half of your firepower isn't good because it's only one thing you're shooting. Yeah, no, you yeah. hit it on the head. That's that's exactly what I like to try and do with, with my list is just make sure that I see the one thing that can hurt my army and, and try and remove it. And if you can get that done, then your opponent is totally fighting uphill. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with Brandon completely. Just try try and either do one of the two. Um, you know, just go with lots of bodies or a lot of the same kind of toughness, a lot of the same kind of save. Um, that isn't to say that the transport tactic isn't valuable because it's still really annoying when you're trying to um, figure out how many shots something will take to kill, it often skews. And then you'll start to realize, wait a second, I'm not going to kill that rhino and every guy inside, that guy is still going to be on top of that objective and I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. Um, it, it is difficult to do um, everything that you want to do or that you, you conceive of at the beginning of your turn. Sometimes you get to the end of it going, man, I didn't do shit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what I think what we're really trying to say here is that you should, that whatever army you picked, whatever faction you picked, you should try to do one of those two options, basically, right? So like if you're, if you're Tau, for instance, um, you might not be able to spam four, I think spamming three Riptides and then, there is no Riptide equivalent. Um, but basically, I don't think Tower are very good at spamming Orc bodies, right? They can't put 150 Orcs down on the board. They can put 150 Crew down on the board, but I don't know if that's necessarily competitive. But what they can do is they can't. They do have transports. Uh, they do have diversifying toughness. So maybe with Tau, you might want to go that route instead. Um, but with orcs, for instance, you definitely, I definitely see more value in bringing 150 boys than bringing like 80 boys and four trucks. Right, which which is really kind of meh. Um, so it, it really depends. But Pablo, you mentioned Tau. Um, Tau can fit a lot of firepower in the volume of two rhinos. But yes, they absolutely can. I've seen breacher squads come in, come out of uh, Devilfish and blow Gilliman up, or even Crisis Suit Commanders. They're just a base on the table. They're one model. So three Crisis Commanders can easily be out of line of sight turn one, move pretty far depending on which suit they're in. And do plenty of damage when they get there. So Tau isn't at a loss for deploying second in a way where the most important models are out of line of sight and still threatening you. Yeah, right, and the other good thing about them is that they're characters, so they can't be targeted most of the time. Yeah, I th I think I think the I think it's kind of cool. I really like the character change in ninth edition um, because it does make characters like Tau and Tau commanders a little more risky to run, right? So they're not just flying around the board nuking your characters um, and without having worried about being shot at because if they leave their gun lines they start to become they start putting themselves in more danger um, which in turn might give your opponent the secondaries that they necessarily wouldn't have been able to get before um, but that's all tactics I, I I like that a lot and tau commanders are still really really good they're still just really good gun line shooters they can just hide out in their billions of drones and just put out an insane amount of efficient firepower. But anyways, uh, let, let's go and talk about reserves now. So reserves is a concept we've talked about. It Maybe even it deserves its own episode, but 
the point of reserves is to affect um is to basically give up your uh unit's first turn presence um or, or maybe not even their first turn presence but uh you know put them in a position to either succeed in the future uh or protect them from a first turn hazard like like an alpha strike right that's essentially what reserves are and i'm really glad gw gave everyone the option for reserves it really opened up a lot of our different army options for armies that maybe weren't viable before and i think people just haven't quite found them yet but how important is reserve manipulation um when you want to go first and how much should you dedicate a specific unit to only going in reserve um when you're building your list to kind of play around first turn so first of all if the unit has the ability to go in reserve without spending command points plan for it to always go in reserve essentially um, I think that's going to be especially powerful in ninth edition. So James's Terminators are a great example. Uh, other than the Terminators, he wants to start on the board, of course. But when it comes to using command points to put stuff in reserve, have some flexibility. Um, and I think almost everyone should be planning to put a lot of stuff in reserve, and a lot being like 25% of your army up to. Um, that's a lot in my mind. But take um, my sister's list, for example. I've got uh, Sister's Repentia with Rhinos, and it seems like, okay, I could always start those on the board, right? Well, no. Um, I can also outflank them for a command point and some change. They're less than nine power level. And with Miracle Dice mechanics, they can automatically complete charges. So just like James's Terminators, coming in from reserve, automatically completing charges with a unit that will tear apart almost anything in the game super good um so if you're gonna do that and you have a unit that 12 inches away or less the enemy is dead the other part of your list that you're going to want to build when it comes to strategic reserves is a way to remove enemy chaff units efficiently and it sounds like james has that plan with my terminators just shoot your guardsmen off the board and now you don't have screens anymore but Tau's especially good at this. They have a lot of strength 5, AP 1, or 2 firepower, uh, which is great for removing screens. But if you're just going to bring only hard-hitting units in reserve that are melee-based, your opponent might be able to screen you out. And they'll, if you run out of reserves before they run out of bodies, then you're just going to lose. There are some units, though, that are just, I mean, like they're automatically you throw them in there. Like, for example, Space Marine Eradicators. You see them typically going into reserve because they're only three-man units. They fit in really small pockets where your opponent might miss a spot in his backfield or on the side of somewhere. And um, yeah, they're, they're like almost purpose-built for going second. Yeah. And in fact, you're hitting on a class of units I didn't cover, which is really solid shooting at 24 inches away from reserve. That's really hard to screen out, number one. And uh, number two, it's fewer units that you have to worry about hiding turn one. So it makes it much, much easier to go second if you take more 24-inch range shooting units that just come in from reserve. Yeah, absolutely. There, the other thing, too, is there's a lot of really good immobile units that actually benefit from reserve. Like, the aggressors were... I mean, aggressors were pretty good in, in 8th edition. I'm not going to lie. They weren't amazing, but they weren't bad. Uh, but Salamander's aggressors and aggressors in general got a huge boost because they fit that mold exactly. They can shoot... They have 18-inch range, godly amounts of shots. 
uh, coming out of reserve. They're immobile, so they desperately need the ability to outflank. And when they can charge, they, they hurt. And they also have access to consistent charges in, like, chaplains and uh, specific stratagems and specific chapters. So they're, they're kind of like the quintessential, like, I, I'm so glad that I GW created this reserve rule unit. Um, but look for units like that. You'll, um, I, I don't know every army well enough to say, to spot, highlight that specific unit. But, like, there's a lot more than just Space Marine aggressors. Like, Tyranid Warriors, for instance. Tyranid Warriors are absolutely dirty. I've seen a lot of Tyranid players run, like, nine Tyranid Warriors. And with the with the Bone Swords and their shooting, they can come out of reserves. You don't have to worry about them dying, because they are relatively fragile T4 bodies, um, even with the higher wound count. But you're putting, like, 27 wounds somewhere on the board that your opponent maybe wasn't expecting. It comes out, it charges, wipes out a unit of intercessors or whatever, and then just shoots another unit off the board. And now all of a sudden you have to deal with this threat that your opponent kind of, like, you know, scalpeled into your army. That's, that's, that hurts. That And there's other units like it. You have to, you have to kind of, like, look at your army's entire range and figure out what works best for, for you. It might just be, like fire dragons or uh, i don't know whatever. no that's that's exactly right you, you actually that's a great example another example i was going to give was uh havocs from chaos space marines are mm-hmm. amazing at that um because they don't take any penalty for moving and shooting heavy weapons so they can come on the board anywhere and tear you up with some chain cannons last cannons missile launcher whatever they are armed with um i, I don't know if brandon you want to give any kind of examples that you've retrovisions Especially yeah. after October, when I hope they have two-shot multi-meltas. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, Twenty-four inches delete enemy vehicles. So good. Yeah, with a stratagem too. The, yeah, retributors are really, really powerful. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, James. Does do havoc sergeants also get thunder hammers too? Now they can have them. Yeah, but um, it's actually even better to give them just two plasma guns or two melta guns. Okay, I, I mean the fact that they can dual wield the plasma gun is silly. Yeah, and then shoot twice when they do it. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, is is you you get the option in this edition, you get the option to diversify a unit a little more than you were able to last edition. So before, in previous editions, if you had, like, a tactical squad with, like, a Thunderhammer Sergeant and, like, a Grav Cannon, that might have been super optimal because that tactical squad is really immobile. It just doesn't kind of fit and make sense. And it's kind of a waste of points. But you can actually tailor a unit's specific role and then outflank it because it gets all that mobility it's actually able to be put in more positions where it can succeed and you don't have to worry about it being shot off the board turn one right so that's why a unit like havocs is a really good example and i'm really glad james brought them up because havocs weren't great last edition because they're super easy to kill they chain guns didn't have the the a billion range that they needed to um and they just they just kind of underperformed Right. Whereas now they can outflank, they can take a good shooting lane, wipe out a unit, and in a desperate desperate pinch, they can charge an Imperium or a Space Marine unit and wreck them with uh, Death to the Falls Emperor and just a weight of attacks. Which, because I think, because they also get plus one attack right on the charge. So they're charging, yeah, yeah so, you know, they'll, they'll kill like a few intercessors in close combat, like reliably. So. Anyways, uh, is there anything else do do you guys want to add to this? I feel like we covered the the three kind of like big ways. Um, is there any small other ways or little tips and tricks you guys want to give everyone before we move on to the final part of the show? 
Not really. I mean, I think just, uh, again, really figure out what you can do to uh, manipulate the reserves, right? That's this whole thing is reserve manipulation, not just using reserves, but figuring out ways to make it work for you and work for your army, depending on the build that you're taking. Um, Brandon's already talked a lot about how you can almost guarantee charges with a few different armies. That's a really key one to, to, to take into consideration because it's not just about making a charge and killing something it's about tying other stuff up as well which is something i don't really see a lot of people like kind of trying for and it's super important because if you can get in kill something and then touch that you know a unit that's that's a big deal still and and i, I don't like that people aren't trying as much as they did in in eighth to do that mm-hmm. uh brandon do you have anything else to add to that the opposite's also true if you have stuff like infiltrators or the repulsor rule or tangle foot grenades where you can block charges or those uh scout cavalry for admech those are really good please consider bringing them because it helps going second way more when you're that much harder to charge absolutely all right so we've reached the end of the episode if you're a chapter tactics veteran you you already know this however if you're new to the podcast at the end of every episode we like to open the floor to the patrons uh, where the patrons get to ask us questions that we answer live on air and let me just go ahead and pull up the Facebook group because I had the winner up. Um, and so if you'd like to ask us a question, remember, you can always uh, subscribe for just $5 a month. You get to ask us cool questions uh, that we answer. You get to join the Discord server, talk on the Facebook group, and uh, get to ask list questions and just generally have some good times. So first question is going to be for Mr. Eric. Should I take first turn if given the chance to? I think we kind of already talked that, but... If should you always take first turn if given the chance to? No, Brandon and yeah. James. No, no, it's matchup dependent. Matchup highly matchup Use your dependent. Brain. Use your brain. That's it. Use your brain, Eric. And then how many nurglings are too many nurglings? More Ooh. than the maximum you're allowed to take yeah. per rule of three. <laughs> yeah. Are they troops though? Take yeah, they are. Oh, troops, there are so. troops. Darn it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, then don't take more than your detachment allows, and then you're fine. Nice. Yeah, so they're they're the pretty legally silly amount. <laughs> if you if you want to get ahead of the game on on going first and and you don't care about losing a bunch of bodies, Nurklings are the way to go. Mm. Uh, all right, Patron Paul has actually a really good question. Does the crew think it's going first? Is that going first is the problem, or is the problem actually the reduction of scoring rounds from six to four, making it early much harder to catch? I think that's an excellent comment. Uh, that Absolutely. is part of the problem. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So uh, I kind of mentioned it. I said, if you go first, oh, yeah. even if you get tabled turn five, if you won the primary turns one, two, and three, you probably still win. Yeah, that's right. Um, especially since that last turn is, um, you're still kind of playing towards it. And uh, your opponent is the one who's going to end up benefiting or losing hard um, if they don't score. You know, if you have any like models left over for player one, it's going to be really rough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't quite agree with the uh, moving, the cutting the turns down and all that personally. Um. But it does make the game shorter. So. Um. Uh. Yeah. I would. I would just say to focus on because not every objective can be scored. Um. I. I guess not every objective is important and has to be scored turn one, right? So you can kind of focus on on like your army strength at that point, just scoring on turn two, three, and four. But. Anyways, all right. Um, patron Robert wants to know: Looking at someone who plays mono Slanesh demons, do you see viability in mono demons list in ninth, or is soup the only option for top tables? That's a perfect question for James. 
yeah, I think honestly that you can you can go to an RTT and I think you can actually win with Mono Slanesh. Um, but here again, this is perfect for this episode. You gotta go first. This is not one of those ones where you can you can uh, do any real you know, meaningful reserve manipulation. You just got to go first, flood the table, get across the table with your keepers and shellaxi, um, and, and get maximum damage and maximum coverage. So it just, I think for an RTT, it's fine, but GT, you're just going to hit somebody that is, is going to be able to zone you out and take first turn from you. And you, you're probably going to end up losing that game. But as far as RTTs are concerned, I think, yeah, man, if you get the right draw, you should be fine. Hmm. All right. Uh, Patron Jesse has a question I think I can answer. Uh, thoughts on neoprene footprints for ruins and other terrain without a base. Um, so here, here's the deal, right? So the, there's this big controversy around ninth edition terrain um, amongst TOs where should we, you know, how do we deal with based ruins and based terrain, right? That's already something that um, a lot of TOs have. A lot of TOs don't want to ruin their t- ruins that they've worked really hard on um, by taking the base off. But the base has proven to be... a a liability especially with no established terrain rule set or something put out like the itc for instance or gw right so uh, the idea of switching to neoprene footprints for ruins sounds really good in theory in my opinion and this is speaking of someone who could directly benefit from selling neoprene neoprint ruins right because uh, neoprint footprints for ruins because that's something that that flg can definitely jump into i'm not i'm not saying that we are or we aren't i'm just saying that you know we make neoprene mats um, jumping to neoprene footprints for for terrains feels like like a pretty easy jump, but I don't like it. I don't I don't like the idea. Um, it is easier for transportation, but it also gives like your players just the ability to just mess with everything, right? So you have to assemble the terrain, the footprints first, then you have to assemble the ruins on top of that. Well, like what if like they start putting the terrain on the wrong ones? So like a smaller base but they put like a large L shape on it. So it doesn't quite fit and it looks kind of weird. And then you start attributing rules to them and then you start losing them. It's yeah. just as a TO, it, it would be a nightmare to set up that many tables with all those footprints, you know, and top of the, the terrain and then having to deal with it all. So I don't know. I think if the solution to that problem was an easy one, it would have been taken care of already. Oh, but, absolutely. Oh, I have an easy, easy solution. It's called a jigsaw. I mean, sure, but again, that's taking that's going to take a long time for a tournament like LVO or oh, yeah. Nova. If you or... have six hundred tables of terrain to modify, that's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're definitely not buying. If we printed neoprene footprints for ruins, we definitely would not use them <laughs> at the LVO oh, uh, yeah. unless Reese wants to personally rip off the base of every single terrain piece he's painted, which is a lot. Um, I was uh, talking with some pe- some players in the Midwest and. You know, it's it's just kind of funny because they're like, well, why don't you just use common sense? And I'm like, well, what is your common sense telling you to do? And they're like, well, p- pretend like the base isn't there. And I'm like, well, I mean, but it is, right? So it's not common sense. And it's just funny that, you know, no matter where you go, everybody's got their opinion. And uh, it's, it's a really good question because of that, right? We don't have a solid and straightforward answer because it is an issue. Um, going forward, I think that you guys really, I mean, like when I say you guys, I mean FLG needs to take the time to sit in that uh, the, the TO group and just come up with something, put it to a vote or something, because it is going to be an issue until somebody does something about yeah. it. So so I uh, Reese has gone on record in saying that the ITC is working on some sort of packet, something that TOs can kind of look towards in the future. I don't know if that's necessarily going to contain terrain rules or not. 
Um, but I do think a standardized terrain is something that a standardized terrain layout with standardized terrain rules is definitely something the community needs, especially as more and more um, places will start opening up and hosting tournaments. Uh, but also um, the bases, I love the terrain and bases because it's also so intuitive, right? Like you talked about those people talking about common sense, like bases on terrain, they're just, they're just really intuitive. Like you, you know where the terrain ends and where it begins. You know where the terrain, where you get terrain, where you don't. Um, as opposed to a piece of terrain that doesn't have a base, like if it's got like an overhanging level, like what GW terrain, GW ruins have all the time. Like where where does it end? Like where do you get cover? Where do you not get cover? Um, what when do you count as being inside the terrain? It just it gets a little more abstract, and which leads to more arguments, which is something that GW is trying to cut back on. Like when they got rid of blast templates, um, which were intuitive but also led to a ton of arguments. But anyways, um, Patron Robert wants to know, as far as he can tell, the importance of first turn very much depends on the terrain. How much really? Um, the question is, how much really does it depend on first on terrain, and what can we do so that neither is the obvious bad choice? I. I think I just completely, but I'm just going to read his verbatim. As far as I can tell, the importance of first turn very much depends on the terrain, list, and secondaries. The question is, how much really, and what can we do so that neither is the obvious choice? He's talking about um, when you're going on terrain, list, and secondaries, uh, if you heavily focus on one or the other, basically. Brandon, you already talked about this. Go ahead and handle it. Yeah, it's, you got to build your list to handle, I can hide two rhinos. That's everything I can hide. So have enough so that you have enough CP to strategic reserve important things, that that stuff that comes in from strategic reserve will have a meaningful impact, and make sure that the stuff you do have exposed in that scenario is uniform. Yeah, I mean, he also kind of did ask, um, like, you know, how much terrain does he need, right? Wasn't that part of the question? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think if you are using the whole 60% to 70% um, coverage thing, you're going to be fine. but it's really up to the person running the event that you're going to, to, to make sure that they have the correct keywords to every piece of terrain. That's really important as well. We didn't really talk about that. Yeah. That, that's a lot. There's a lot in the, the topic. I'm definitely sensing a, a future episode or, or future topics where we come back to it. All right. Uh, patron Matt wants to know, is there any way to design a list that if it doesn't go first, can have a decent beta strike? If so, which armies have this capability? Space Marines. Space Marines. Chaos. Well, yeah. Admech. Admech. I, I think I think if you have really good close range shooting and good options for reserves, um, I think your army fits that kind of idea, right? So like I, Oh, I was gonna say like like even like Necrons have stuff that have units that can beta strike really well, like destroyers um can come into the board uh and just absolutely wreck a certain amount of units and then hold the board, right? So I mean, that's a good example. I, I mean, we haven't talked about them at all this episode, and it's really worth mentioning that Harlequins are great beta strikers. Oh, yeah. Uh, they can hide, and their movement puts them basically wherever they want to be. So, um, And the fact that those flip belts allow you to move over the top of models makes it so that there's no way they can be screened really effectively. I would say that I would be remiss without saying that Harlequins are something you should be looking out for, or if you want something that can beta strike, really look into them. Um, the, the bikes are really fast and they, they, they can take out just about anything you need. Um, just the standard players are basically, I mean, elite level units that can kill up characters, kill chaff, kill whatever you need, um, with either their shooting or their close combat. So 
I would say if you're looking into a really good beta strike army that can take advantage of you know limited space and limited dense terrain, they're a good start. Yeah, that's that's. I'm. You're right about Harlequins too. Um, Brandon, do you have anything else to add to that? All right, perfect. Patron John wants to know: Is it better to master a list archetype or to be comfortable playing in a variety of different ways? Um, I.e., if your list archetype is alpha striking or castling or board control. And then finally, which archetypes would you say is the best to know how to play? Playing balanced board control lists, I think, are probably the best thing to start with. Um, I think the question he asked, it can kind of be answered by saying that you should probably learn just to play a little bit of everything at first, and then you can maybe get really good at playing a certain niche kind of army. Once you're good at that, then the masters always circle around to be, you know, to playing everything again, playing and and being proficient at every aspect of the game. Um, But at least my trajectory was that way. I kind of knew knew a little bit of everything at first and then i kind of figured out i figured out i really like close combat so i i tried and excel at that and now that i'm getting back into the hobby I'm, I'm making sure to look at every way to play the game shooting included now which wasn't in any of my lists originally but now you have to and ninth edition is a tactical game so you're gonna have to know how to do everything yeah well said start with try everything Figure out what you like, play that to death, and then if you've gotten so good at that, you just win everything, trial or list. Well, one thing I will add to both of what James and Brandon said was um, if you're having a hard time with a specific aspect of the game, switching to another style of list is also very important, right? So, like, when I first started playing um, at 40k, I, I ran a lot of Alpha Strike armies, so I got really good at, like, prioritizing uh, targets, um, picking out specific units to take out. Um, you know, poking holes in my opponent's defenses, but I was absolutely terrible, and I still am. I'm not the greatest 40k player, but I, I still am really bad at playing the late game, right? Because when I play Alpha Strike armies, I just never got to a late game. I usually my opponent would either concede, or the late game would be absurdly easy because I wiped out their army, or I just lost, right? Because I'd lose my entire army and then have nothing, no late game to speak of. Right, and so that's something that like uh, really good players, like a really good player to watch on Twitch would be like Sean Naden, who's late game is absurdly good. Um, but top players have a good late game presence because um, they know that the late game is just as important as their early game. And there's two ways to get to the late game. There's there's like limping into the late game or playing for the late game, both of which are pretty viable. Uh, but yeah, so like I I would suggest if you're having a hard time with uh, target priority, you know build an alpha strike list learn like how people build their defenses how people psychologically deploy um if you're having a hard time with um remembering to jump on objectives at the end of the game uh try castling where because if you don't do that you start losing <laughs> so yep anyways and then uh finally patron michael wants to know actually that's not a question that's just a comment to another question that's it that's in the patron questions uh once again if you'd like to ask us questions head on over to that patreon all right brandon and james thank you so much for an amazing episode i felt like it was a really good discussion do yeah, i just have, have any yeah do I have one question have any plugs oh, i have ahead. no plug i want to ask brandon do you know the sex of your baby yet i'm having a girl in a less than two weeks awesome oh man welcome to the club i got a little girl too congratulations we're all Brandon's daddies now dude all we three are. of us. That's crazy to, to little girls. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. Are all of our children one year apart? Two years? One year? No. Not, not quite. quite. 
Anyways, that's enough reminiscing. Uh, let's talk. Do either of you have any plugs? No plugs, man. Go ahead. No, let's no close plugs. this out. All right. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. You are all the best listeners in the world. Shoot those episode topic ideas to me at frontlinegamingpdpob at gmail.com. I am now starting to run out of ninth edition only topics, uh, and there is a lack of tournament coverage. So if there's anything you guys want to hear us talk about, and gals, uh, you want to hear us talk about, whether it has to do with ninth edition, has to do with competition, uh, theory, whatever you want, uh, I am all ears. Go into that comment section below. Let us know how bad we did at talking about going first or how good we did what topics you want to hear us talk about, what guests you want us to have on the show, and so much more. And as always, have a good one.